if you'll turn, turn with me to Philippians, uh, your Bible will start falling open to that place hopefully soon uh, as we continue to go through this wonderful book, uh, wonderful letter. In verses 9 through 11, this is Paul's prayer at the end of his opening. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God will abide forever. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this word. As we daily come before it, as we come before it today as well, we ask that you would open our eyes to see your word clearly, to understand to know you. Lord, by your Spirit, draw us in to who you are, into your love, into your grace, and transform us by your Spirit. Lord, fill me with strength. I would proclaim your word clearly. Be with us all today. In Christ's name, amen. So why does God save people? It's not merely that we would be saved, just to be saved. But part of it is that we would live in a way that reflects our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think of when uh, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. There were many Pharisees and Sadducees there. And Jesus spoke quite directly to them at that point in time. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't just rely on a pedigree. Rely on what you say might have happened. We're saved to bear fruit. We're to live lives that glorify God. Paul states as much as in in his letter to the Ephesians. We know chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. A lot of times we cut it off right there before verse 10. But it's for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast for... We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, we are not merely saved to be saved, but saved to bear fruit. And that bearing fruit, that conforming to the image of Christ, is actually good for us. You just heard it. I close a majority of my prayers with, for your glory and our good and joy. Living in the way that Christ has called us, living in dependence on Him, and in in faith, in refuge, in trust, in pursuit of righteousness. That's for God's glory, and it's also for our good. 
And it is ultimately for our joy. It's good to live in the way the Creator and King has set forth. It it doesn't mean it will be the easiest thing to do, but it will be the best. And part of that, with the recognition that it's not the easiest thing to do, any of us who have tried, even by the strength of Christ, to to live in the way that He calls us to realize it's not easy, and it tells us and it clues us in to the fact we can't do this in our own strength. We need the work of God in our lives. Paul knew that. That's why you find prayers. That's why we find this prayer. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning is Paul's prayer. It's a prayer for what is best for the believer, and it's for the glory of God. It's a prayer that as believers, our love would abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment for the purpose of knowing and living in the way of Christ. See, Paul prayed for what is vitally important, and by writing it down, he instructed us and he encourages believers not only to pursue this, but also gives us instruction in what to pray for ourselves and for others. Pray for believers with whom we are in partnership in the gospel of grace. So verse 9 is the basic prayer. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That's it. That's, that's really, in many ways, the prayer. It picks up from verse 4 where Paul wrote, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Here, he's giving some of the content of the prayer that he prays. He's letting the readers know what he, as as one inspired by the Holy Spirit, what he views as essential. And so this is what he prays, that your love may abound more and more. Your love. Now, clearly the focus here is on love. But if you notice, there's no object to that word, is there? Your love, love of, of what? There's just the word love. It's rather ambiguous. So to what is Paul referring? What, what type of love is he talking about? Is it love for one another? Much like his prayer, his benediction recorded at 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 to 13, where he wrote, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Now, that prayer actually sounds quite familiar to what he prays in Philippians. And here in 1 Thessalonians, the object of love is people, your love for others and um, the, the idea, everything that we see, the, the blameless before God, the coming of Jesus, it's, it's all there. So we know Paul can actually write more specific than he does in Philippians. So why doesn't he in Philippians? In our letter, Paul uses the word love three other times. In 116, he writes, "'The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel.'" And in that context, Paul's referring to those who preach Christ from goodwill. 
That's love, but is that out of love for God? Is it out of love for others? Is it out of love for Paul? We don't actually know in that verse. And then there's 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Again, to what does this love refer? Is it Christ's love? Is it love for Christ? Is it love for one another? I actually think in all these occasions, Paul is being purposely vague because he wants to encompass all of it. So the answer to that, is it this, this, or this? Yes, it's all of them. He's not doing it to mislead, but to encompass all aspects of love. It is Christ's love. It's love for Christ, love for one another, and for the lost and fallen world to know Christ. So he prays then that this love would abound more and more, that it would increase, that it would be more and more prevalent, that it would be found in abundant quantity in their lives. I looked up the word abound. It's a a beautiful word. It's, It's used in very comforting ways throughout Paul's letters. I think of 2 Corinthians 1, 5. Paul writes, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. As we suffer with Him, that suffering might abound, but His comfort abounds as well. Or 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. It would overflow. And then there's Ephesians Chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, which He uh, abundantly poured out upon us, which He caused to abound for us. His grace, the riches of God's grace, is absolutely overflowing and abounding upon His children It's a glorious word in Scripture as well, because not only does it tell us what we receive, but it tells us from whom we receive it. It tells us of the nature of our God. He's not chintzy. He doesn't tip the minimum, you know, at a store. He's going to give over and above. Reflects His nature. And then how we are to reflect that nature how we're to reflect His love in all areas. This is to be an ongoing, dynamic growth in our life. The love is to abound in the sense that it will not stop in our lifetime. There's to be no limit to our growth. It should be overflowing. I don't know many of you and where you grew up, but whether you've ever grown up with a massive flood. But I remember very vividly 1982 and the great flood that hit Fort Wayne, Indiana. The three rivers that converged, just, it was overwhelming. Our backyard was a swimming pool, and it's never had a swimming pool in it. Well, no, it did. It's three foot tall, but that wasn't much of a swimming pool for someone my size. Um, It had a wading pool, I guess. But I remember actually going downtown um, as a kid who was nine years old and sandbagging 
And I can still remember and, and I can picture the feel of those wet, gritty sandbags and slinging them from person to person to person, trying to protect houses and property and belongings. And actually, President Reagan actually went to Fort Wayne. It was the last time prior to President Trump that any president had visited Fort Wayne, Indiana, and he actually, in his coat and tie, slung some sandbags himself. The water was pervasive. He could see it from Air Force One. It was everywhere. There was virtually nothing untouched by those overflowing waters. And that's how the love of a believer is to be. Overflowing, absolutely touching everything, not with an impact of destruction, but with knowledge and all discernment. With knowledge and all discernment. What kind of knowledge is this to be? Ephesians 1.17, Paul prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Colossians 1.9 and 10, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, <coughs> and increasing in the knowledge of God. He's praying for a, a, an intimate knowledge of God and this knowledge to grow um, and, and, and be there so that it would give us clarity not only in how we love God and know Him further, but in how we love others. You see, love is not some blind sentiment or feeling Love is informed and guided by knowledge and discernment. These go hand in hand. You, you cannot have good and helpful and true love without knowledge and wisdom and discernment. And at the same time, knowledge and wisdom without love doesn't do much good either. They must go together. Think of in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that, you know, if I, have, if I speak in the tongues of angels and men but have not love, I'm nothing, literally nothing. Real love, love that abounds, that it abounds for good, must flow out of the knowledge of God. And it's discerning. The love that Paul calls for, that he, that he prays for, is love that has the ability, it has, uh, you could say it has the, the, the taste for what is spiritually beneficial, what is good and beautiful in whatever situation you come to. See, it distinguishes between not just good and evil, but between what is good and what is best. It is aware of the circumstances of actions. You know, if you do A, then B will result. There's, there's an ability, there's a wisdom to, to read situations. We've probably all been around people or known people or been that person who has walked in and not read the room and said something that in normal circumstances would have been neutral. But in that circumstance, you wanted to crawl into a corner because what you said just did not work at all. You didn't read the room. You had no idea what was going on. It ended up being pretty off-putting 
even damaging. You see, Paul's praying that that kind of stuff doesn't happen. That the believer would have spirit-guided discernment to know in every situation. He's he's not praying for, for intuition, but the work of the Spirit in our lives, guided by knowledge of God, knowing Him and His character and His priorities in life. So you see, what we have here is Paul praying for an ever-increasing love that is discriminating in a good way, that it understands, it perceives situations, it's maturing in the gospel, and it works properly in the daily experiences of life, in family, in church, in work, with friends, wherever you are, the love that is shown will actually be beneficial. It's love that's grounded and guided and governed by growing knowledge of the Lord. So that when a sibling or a spouse and you're not sure what to do, that your love would abound rather than saying that stupid thing and sticking your foot in your mouth. You love. And it might be saying nothing. It might be listening. It might be putting your arm around them. It might be just a hug. It might be get them water and some food because they're hangry. Who knows? but it's learning to love in those situations. And it's, I, I kind of, I, I think about it as kind of a combination of science and art, that, that the knowledge is science. It's, we understand who God is. We're growing in that. And the art is learning how to put that knowledge of God and our love into practice. It's a balance of both things. But let me drill down a little bit more on something, and it's on love itself. I merely want to reiterate for us that the nature of love is selfless giving. Okay, we hear love all the time. If you you watch a TV show or a movie, and, and love is this emotional feeling drawn towards somebody. You're physically attracted or whatever it may be, and so you you just have this feeling. That's not the love we're talking about here. God so loved the world that he gave. It's a giving. It's selfless giving. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see that sacrificial nature. And so our love is to imitate Christ's love. Our, our love is to be sacrificial love. And Paul will go over that. This is, this is setting the stage in many ways for what he will look to in chapter 2 in relation to how we live with one another. And he speaks to this a good deal in his writings, doesn't he? Because Self-sacrificial love is really easy. Okay, I'm just making sure you all were still awake. It is really hard. First Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I find myself, I pray that in the morning, And quite often, 
30 minutes later, I'm like, dang, I didn't do that very well. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray this for one another. We need to pray this for ourselves. We need the Lord to work this into our lives because this is the kind of love that is to overflow. Love that's costly to us, but love that at the same time, though costly to us, greatly benefits the one who receives it. Folks, this is just the petition. Paul goes on to address the purpose more specifically as to why he prays. Verse 10, so that. If, if you ever come across the word so that, stop and, and realize that he, he's giving you the reason. These two English words, they give us the reason for what preceded. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Here we have the outcome of love abounding and overflowing, so that you may approve what is excellent. Now, just a reminder here, because English is not always the most helpful. You is plural. This is written to the church, to the community. It, it obviously applies to the individual, but it's thinking about the church as well, that the church would know what is most excellent. The previous verse, the idea of discernment, it was there of, of knowing what to do in certain situations. Here, the gist is understanding and approving of making a, a critical examination of something, of testing it in order to know what is of most importance, what is superior, what is excellence. Folks, this is hard. I, we, we live in a day and age of overload. We have so much access to so much stuff. Type in something on Amazon, and you've got this list forever. 45 companies that make the same thing, and you've heard of one of them in your life. Sobo, or what? You know, all these kind of things on and on. There's, there's an almost endless nature to the internet and to what we can do. Go to the grocery store. How many choices of mac and cheese does a person need? or yogurt, or 15 kinds of eggs? I thought eggs just came from chickens. And they're just chicken eggs? I mean, they didn't have ostrich eggs and everything else. There's just all kinds of chicken eggs, or cereal. Or goodness, go down the snack bar aisle and try and pick one. Sometimes it's hard to know even the best thing in those situations. But think about it in real life. When you're not just deciding whether to get, you know, Nature Valley granola or Kodiak granola. It's hard to know in relationships, in life, in, in, in the life of the church, always what is excellent and what is best. But as Dennis Johnson wrote, he said, When God gives you a heart that loves others wisely, setting you free from grasping selfishness and grieving self-pity, what is really important begins to come into focus. With practice, you develop a taste for the things that count, things that last. You learn to make choices that align your priorities with God's wise purpose for you and to exhibit Jesus' wise love toward others. 
as we grow in knowing Him, as we grow in understanding ourselves, seeing our own selfishness and sinfulness and denying that and, and seeking to put that to death, we grow in our understanding of what is going to be best for others. In Ephesians 5, Paul charged the believers, walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. See, the call here is to know what is best, to know what truly matters. But it isn't simply to know, to, to approve it, to discern it, but it's actually to do what is best as well. Like I, a lot of times I know the best thing to do. And too many of those times I don't do that because it's not the easy thing to do. It's, it's the sacrificial, it's the selfless thing. And at that point in time, I'm tired and I'm hungry and hangry. And so I don't want to do it. This helps us see how that is so much more beneficial. And in Romans 2, Paul was writing about the Jews themselves, and he said, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you were instructed from the law. So there, what, what Paul is saying is that the Jews were guided by the law to discern what is best. But Paul does not ask the Philippian believers to be guided by law here. Rather, he says, be guided by love that abounds and overflows with knowledge of Christ and the discernment of the Spirit of God in us. It's, again, it's not a love of feeling. This is not um, uh, relativism. Well, just, you know, I felt more love this way, to go this way. It's, it's a love guided by knowledge and discernment. It's a love informed by absolutes, by the absolute standard of true love, by the standard of Christ. Now, because we, we know this. We know in our lives not all issues carry the same weight. Choosing one type of granola over another, that's different than choosing to serve rather than demand your own preferences. It's different than loving another believer in a way that might inconvenience you, but is what is best. It's different than knowing, yeah, I, I want to pray and read this morning, but, you know, I'm going to watch sports highlights instead. It's doing. It's knowing and doing it. We, we, we grow in maturity. That's why he prays that our love would, would grow in knowledge and all discernment. You know, yes, there are crucial issues where we have to be strong and firm in a loving manner, but there are a lot of things indifferent, and we have to have wisdom and the ability to discern where we're not to be so strong and to be gracious and comfortable with difference of things that are not so critical, but in all of it, we are to show love. So as believers, we are to make choices of what is excellent and most important, and one one commentator wrote, we do this on the basis of an ever-increasing love, a love that penetrated more deeply into the knowledge of God and the treasures of Christ and imparted to the Christian a keener and more delicate moral sense for specific situations. Paul himself had learned this secret of judging what was vital, as he indicates later, 
I regard everything as loss for the sake of the incomparable value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have willingly sustained the loss of all things. But one thing I do, I run straight towards the goal in order to win the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. You know, that's, that's a grid we can use. The incomparable riches of knowing Christ. And this whole prayer that we're looking at, it actually, it sets up, it, it, it lays the table, it's kind of the tablecloth so we can put the setting down that Paul does for the rest of the exhortations in this letter. But Paul continues. Not only does he pray that we would approve what is excellent, but that we would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He prays for our spiritual fitness. The life and character of the believer is to reflect the character of Christ, all the while being prepared for Christ's inevitable return. Paul puts forth this idea. Again, he puts forth this often. 1 Corinthians 1, he gives thanks for the believers and the grace given to them, and he prays that in every way you were enriched in him and all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We're to be guiltless and blameless. He prays that the believers would be pure, that, that, that they would be upright, not hypocritical, that we would have a sincere conscience before God and others, not hiding, not, not living a life. Uh, living a life in, in darkness where there's this outer side that people see and they're like, ah, oh, great person, but in secret, it's a different story. On your computer, it's a different story. On your phone, it's a different story. It says to be pure and blameless. And we know that's not of perfection in this life, but a life of faith and repentance. And it's one that doesn't have mixed motives. It's of a pure heart seeking God's glory and the good of others. It's a life and love that puts others first. And it's blameless. That word could be taken in, in one of two ways, or both ways. It could be either not stumbling into sin or not causing others to stumble into sin. And I think here it likely refers to both aspects. 1 Corinthians 10, starting verse 32, Paul writes, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I don't want to cause anybody to have issues, but imitate me as I imitate Christ, as I seek to be blameless as well. We're to live in a manner that approves the excellent, and in so doing, um, living pure and blameless. We're not only to grow ourselves, but in this love that abounds, we are to to work to further other people's growth in holiness. 
help provide an environment where they grow. And as Paul wrote, all of this is with reference to the day of Christ. This is the second time Paul used the day of Christ in this paragraph. It's the day that Christ will judge our choices. Yeah. And what Paul prays is that those choices would be without charge against us. Now, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but we will give an account. And he prays that we would be pure and blameless. Paul still goes further, doesn't he? Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He likes these words like this, abound and now filled. Filled. Too often, especially folks I think over the past couple years, filled is not the word I would use to describe myself. Drained would be. And by the low groans from you all, I would expect it was the same thing. We're drained rather than filled. We're at the end of our ropes in situations and in life. And Paul prays that we would be filled, that we would not be lacking. It's not a debate whether the glass is half full or half empty, but that it's, it's full. Having the fruit of righteousness. Fruit that is characteristic of one who is in a right relationship with the Lord. One who's in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does this fruit look like? You know, our kids can recite this, right? Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, if we have life by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, filled with the fruit of righteousness. It's fruit that displays the character of God, because the Spirit is producing it in us. It comes from Christ and His work and our union with Him. And we stand before the Father in the name of Christ. This is fruit that comes through Jesus, through our union with Him, as we abide in Him and He in us, and He produces that fruit by the Spirit. And all of this to the glory and praise of God. We can see how it's been for our good, and the good of others, and it's to the glory and praise of God. This is our end. This is our goal. This is our desire. This is our chief end, that God be glorified. And He's glorified in, in taking rebellious sinners, those condemned to bear His wrath and making them pure and blameless, taking them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Pure and blameless, displaying the fruit of righteousness. And this is all done only because of Christ. God so loved the world. Christ and His selfless, 
self-sacrificial love and taking on human flesh and living the life that we couldn't live and dying the death that we all deserve to die and rising again and conquering sin and death, ascending to the Father, and He will return. Folks, our righteousness is not our own. It's His. Christ gave Himself for us that we would not only know the Father, that we would not only be saved, but that we would live worthily of our calling, glorifying and praising Him. So consider this. Ask yourself these questions. What does it look like to love well? What's it going to take for me, for this to, to be more and more true in my life? To love in a way that abounds. When you love on your headstone, when you die, he loved with abounding love. That would be a beautiful thing to read and to know was true with knowledge and all discernment. He proved what is excellent, was pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So examine this for yourself. Ask others, how do you think I'm doing with loving people, with loving you? Ask your spouse, ask your kids, ask friends. Ask the Lord to work it in your lives. Because I'll tell you, studying this over the past week, <laughs> it's a hard part of doing this sometimes, as it just reveals more and more how far short I fall of this. And loving my family, and loving you all, and loving those around. And I want it to be different. And so I want to pray for you all. I want to pray for myself. And I need you all to pray for me. Robert Murray McShane was asked by his congregation, what's the most important thing that you can do for your congregation? It's the basic gist of the question. And his answer was, my holiness. Let's pray for one another. Let's pray that our love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we all would approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Not worried about when He might come back and what we might be doing, but pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled, overflowing, abundant in the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word and your gift of grace. Work in us by your Spirit, your love divine, the love excelling above all. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.